0: This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit provides information on how you can lead a healthy lifestyle. I'm the host, Josie Bidwell. Search for and subscribe to Southern Remedy on any podcasting app to not miss any episode. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Obesity has become one of the biggest health threats to the health of Mississippians, and Mississippi is at 37.3%, which is the second highest rate of adult obesity in the nation. And that's preceded by West Virginia. That's at 37.7. And we've learned that many people have struggled with weight loss, particularly women. So today I have on with me Dr. Jarrett Morgan, who's an assistant professor of internal medicine and pediatrics as well, but he has a focus as an obesity specialist. And so he's here with us this morning, and we'll be talking about this topic to f- further. So welcome, Jared. How are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you, Dr. Kinsey, for having me on today.
0: And this is probably a very familiar voice to a lot of people because Jared has been a wonderful sub for us oftentimes, particularly if you listen on Thursday mornings uh, when Dr. McLeod was out on maternity leave, Jared kind of stepped in and did our kids and teens and for a few weeks. So he's familiar to the MPB Think Radio family. But today we decided we have him on and do a little bit bit of focus on um, obesity. So Jared, for people who may not have listened to the Thursday morning ones, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Right. So
1: again, my name is Dr. Jarrett Morgan. I've been at UMC on faculty now. This is about my fourth year. I've done all my training here in Mississippi as well. So I went to medical school at UMC, did my training in internal medicine and pediatrics at UMC uh, before joining on faculty. Like Dr. Kensi mentioned, I do have a focus, not just in general internal medicine and pediatrics, but also with obesity medicine. And so in that role, uh, I do wear many hats at UMC. But in that role, particularly as a obesity medicine specialist, I tend to focus on more lifestyle modifications. And so when patients are referred to my clinic, we go through kind of the full spectrum of what their eating habits are, um, where people may be falling short with regards to um, what kind of foods, be it good or bad foods, what they uh, intake, as well as also exercise counseling as well, because you can't really um, ignore the physical activity part of things as well. Uh, and of course for patients who are candidates we also talk about pharmacotherapy so medications that are indicated for uh for obesity and for weight management we also talk about that and like incorporating that in those patients that we can as well so it's been actually really fun uh to be an advocate for patients
0: yeah
1: obesity can obviously be a, a subject that is that has carries a lot of stigma a lot of taboo uh, to discuss and it's just uh, it's nice to be a part of people's journey and to advocate for them and approach things in a very uh, respectful and systematic way of helping people out.
0: I love the way you summarize that. And so I thought it was a good topic to talk about today because... Honestly, it's a really challenging conversation in clinic, you know, and, and I have this conversation a lot with my close friends and family members. And one of the things that they say about them hating going to the doctor's office is they say, we're going to talk about their weight mm-hmm. and they don't want to hear us talking about their weight. Absolutely. And so, you know, even me as a primary care provider, I feel terrible because I don't want ever want patients to feel that um, they're being attacked by discussing their weight. It's just the the way I look at it is. Is, and hopefully we'll cover this morning, is the whys. Why do we care about obesity? Why is that important? And why is it that our that your doctor may harp on that a good bit during your visit? Um, and so just a reminder, kind of overall some statistics. So obesity affects almost 40% of people in the United States when we look at adults. And we're up to almost 20%, 19.7% of children and adolescents. So that's scary to know that about one in five of our children um, are dealing with being overweight. But we're not alone. This is actually happening globally. Cause I know sometimes people are like that American diet, those people don't eat well. They're, you know, all those kind of things. But if we look globally, we're at 39% of the global population deals with obesity as well. So in that, if we look back 15 years ago or so, that rate was about 23.9%. So really over the past 15 years, not just in the US, but if we look globally, everyone has been dealing with obesity. And the reason that we care about it is because we know for a fact that when we look at a patient's BMI, the higher your BMI is, you're at increased risk of cardiovascular disease, musculoskeletal problems, you know, joint problems, degenerative disc disease and we even have been able to associate obesity with some cancers, particularly for women, endometrial, breast, ovarian, prostate cancer. So all these things. So When I tell my patients, I'm not talking about your weight to make you feel bad. I'm not talking about your weight because we're all supposed to be thin. And, you know, unfortunately, social media has so many of us thinking we should look a certain way in general. That is not at all why I'm discussing your weight. I'm more discussing it because of these things that I know um, that being overweight is associated with. And then on top of that, we in medicine have realized it's a problem because we have a specialty now. So Mm -hmm. so Dr. Morgan, tell us a little bit about what it takes to be an obesity specialist. What is that? How do you get that title?
1: So in in general, obesity medicine specialist, is uh, a doctor who has uh, either obtained a degree in internal medicine or pediatrics um, and also family medicine as well but they've done a little bit of extra training as well uh, it just focused on both the development of obesity kind of the genetics and environmental things that kind of factor into there but also what are the most up to date um, interventions that are effective so like dietary what diets work or what kind of eating habits work how does exercise affect and how does all that biochemistry inside How is that affect by different actions, as well as just, of course, research involving the medications like I mentioned earlier.
0: And I'm happy that you bring all that up. So no, no one is ever saying, you know, I never want patients to feel like or even sometimes family members make some patients that are overweight feel like you're just not doing enough, like it's Mm -hmm. your fault. Well, we have learned so much and particularly you hit the high points in obesity, learning that there's so much more involved on a cellular level Mm -hmm. that can really contribute to obesity as well. So everyone, it's extra training. And so I always, (laughs) uh, Jared gets a lot of text messages from me every now and then or phone calls like, all right. right? What can I do for this patient? Might be a little bit of time before they can see you. Is there something that we can be doing? So um, that's definitely again, so an additional board that that Jared had to take to become a specialist. So they learn all these things about weight and weight loss and how your body can, you know, react to different diets and medications and things like that. And they study that exclusively on top of what they already do. So I know more training, more training, more tests like it never ends. So so tell us. So we talked a a lot about the importance of obesity and all those things and being an obesity specialist. So for people that are listening, what does it mean to be obese? How do we define obesity?
1: Uh, that's a good question. So the main criteria that we use uh, it involves BMI or body mass index. And so uh, there are easily plenty of calculators online in which people can access what their BMI is. But it's pretty much a ratio of their weight over their height. And we separate them out into different categories. And so 20, usually BMI of 20 to 24.9 is normal weight. Once you reach into the 25 to 29.9 range, you're overweight category. And once you get above 30, 30 or above, that's when we start dividing people into uh, obesity category. Um, we do have some subcategories in which we say class 1, 2, and 3. And just as what Dr. Kinsey, what you mentioned earlier is that we do uh, in general realize that the higher you fall into those class 1, 2, 3, the more you do have those risks associated with worsening disease processes. So hypertension, diabetes, failure failure. Those are seen at much higher rates in patients with higher BMI ranges. Now, there are some limitations to BMI. Um, of course, you can't really classify everyone that has a BMI of, say, 27 into the same um, same view, because obviously people have different uh, what we call body habitus. Mm-hmm. And the, re- the one of the analogies I use sometimes is to compare Dwayne The Rock Johnson to Oprah, because at one point they actually had a very similar BMI. But obviously there is a drastic difference in body makeup muscle-wise versus, say, adipose-wise. So there are some factors that we take into account otherwise, just, of course, how does a patient look as far as their fat distribution there are some much more expensive ways that you can also clarify if a patient is obese uh, the, Some further scans like a dexa scan that you can actually have uh, sometimes in which you can view uh, in scan wise what their fat distribution is and where of course are the the high points where it's located that's not really practical for most practitioners uh, like we're trying to get one for our clinic actually here in in, in Jackson oh wow But it may be well, Uh, but for the most part, BMI is the easiest and simplest way that is uh, mostly applicable to majority of patients.
0: Right. And because I've started to have a lot of people question that because that BMI, again, as many tests in medicine in general, is not the perfect test. Mm -hmm. Um, But it kind of at least gives us an idea of where to start from, um, even though it might not be the most accurate for some people. And that's why I tell everybody everyone is a definite case by case basis. So we look at you individually and essentially make our recommendations based off that. But essentially what we use when we're classifying, just like Jared said, obesity is BMI is usually what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. So, my biggest question to you we talked about the statistics, not just in the US, but globally. Why do we think that we're seeing more obesity?
1: So that's a that's a very complicated question in which we really don't have an exact answer. But we do know there are some trends over time that really have led to um to maybe the increase of rates that we see. So one of the things is of course our food. Um you mentioned it as well, not just in America but across the world, Mm -hmm. we our food is is declining in the quality, if you will. So as we move away from more of a natural based, fruits and veggies based diet and incorporate more of um more processed foods. Even some of our fruits and veggies, of course, with added preservatives, of course, a lot more of that consumption can lead to increased rates in obesity. There are some other things as far as kind of lifestyle. Uh, as we are more industrialized, we tend to be a little bit more sedentary, and that's across the mm-hmm. board. Now, of course, I don't want to completely uh, anchor on that everything is, is, li- is lifestyle or environmental choice. There, are, of course, there are some genetic um, contributions to things. But, of course, nature is affected a lot by our, – our, I should say our genetics are affected quite a bit by, um, by choice, by mm-hmm. those uh, – again, by our diet. So as far as the things that we've been able to pin down, the diet, the food, mm-hmm. and, of course, as we move towards more sedentary, now there are some other kind of more rare things. Uh, so, for instance, in, in, the, in the America, uh, in the 1970s, 1980s era, era you notice that the inc- incorporation of things like bottled water – um, was seen around the same time. So there may be some chemical components and even some of the the um, the uh, liquid co- containers that we use that also may affect, uh, again, from genetic causes. But yeah. there's, there's a whole host of research going into that right now um, as to what is the true
0: cause of obesity because it is like multifactorial overall. Exactly. And so many things in medicine we can't always pinpoint, or life <laughs> in general, can you always pinpoint to one thing? It always has so many different layers to it. So we spent kind of the first half of the show talking a little bit about um, the growing weights of obesity, not just in the U.S. or globally, but here in Mississippi, um, and just what it means. How do we define being overweight? Why is it important? So, Jared, again, this is women's health segment. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I really wanted to focus on today and also to let so many of my female patients, we talk about this in clinic a lot, um, and you'll hear people kind of say or wives and you know, husbands will go on a weight loss journey and you're seeing him over there dropping pounds and clothes falling off. And you're like, I think I gained two pounds. Um, and it seems like you both are doing the same thing. So my I, my question to you is, why do we often see women sometimes have a greater challenge in losing weight compared to men? And is that through all age groups or when women just hit a certain age or, or what? What have we learned about that?
1: Uh, You're exactly right. This is a very challenging subject and a question that I get uh, pretty much every single week. Uh, I think, in general, there are a a few things that you can somewhat pin majority of the difference in. Uh, Physiologically, there is normally, on average, a little bit higher muscle mass for most men, um, as well as just, in general, kind of a a higher, what we call fat-free mass. So, in general, most women, on average, and this is just science, (laughs) just saying that part, on average, we tend to have a little bit higher percentage fat content in general. Um, even at lo- like lower BMI ranges, and so what that means from a metabolism standpoint, because you have a little bit higher muscle mass, a little bit higher uh, fat-free mass, you tend to just metabolize things quicker and easier. Um, and so, even at the same activity level, let's just say housework in general, men tend to burn off calories just easier. And that's kind of across uh, most age ranges for most men. Of and course, not
0: fair. Sorry. I'm yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> it's not. It's not. I have a lot of married couples who disagree in the clinics, uh-huh. but we did the same thing. Um, but for women, of course, there is difference even within age ranges. So, of course, for younger women, uh, of course, metabolism is higher. But once we start having, uh, like once we're in child producing age, once we actually start having children, and of course around menopausal age, that's when even hormonal shifts, even within um, uh, female ra- ranges, tends to drop metabolism even more and make just that weight harder to burn off. Um, and so we, we don't, there's still a lot of research we don't understand quite um, as far as like how things like estrogen and progesterone kind of factors into there. But we can, uh, we can ascertain that testosterone in men tends to allow men, again, to burn things off faster, and also even when they're losing weight, to kind of mobilize different fat stores more differently. Oh, wow. So those are at least some of the, different, the main differences. Um, but, of course, there are some other things, too. Um, of course, there, there are many different studies about kind of how women and men respond to different even dietary patterns. And so that still is a lot of research as to the why, but sometimes you'll notice that men, a lot of men when they're losing weight, may focus on lower carbs, which tends to actually be very effective. And I see that even within my own clinic. But if you use the same dietary pattern for women, they tend to not respond as well to lower carb and actually respond to a little bit lower fat diet. And of course, again, there is a lot of difference that we have, a lot of biochemistry that we have to kind of see... Why? Um, and there's a lot more studies to even expand those results, but that even that is unique and, and challenging for a lot yeah. of women. So I can I can definitely see why that's a problem and the and question in most women and with most uh, female patients' minds.
0: And I'm happy you explain that because I, I I just try to encourage the females and like it's not in your head. It's not one of those things that people try to tell you like oh you know you're just kind of. But we see it, you mm-hmm. know. And and I have now officially been, if I include my training and everything, have been practicing for 12 years now and I literally and now as I'm aging as well I feel like I'm starting to understand a little bit better I can't speak a lot on menopause or perimenopausal stage quite yet through my patients but not personally but I really now have noticed the pattern for many of my female patients it seems like you hit that mid to late 30s and that's when it's like things just kind of start adding on just Mm -hmm. a little bit and then you hit 40 and it's like My gosh, I try, you know, some things and I'm working, 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 I lose a little bit of weight. And then 50, it's like I'm doing everything and I'm gaining weight. And so I really now, at least in my clinic, I try to across the board encourage everyone diet, exercise, healthy eating, but I try to start telling my young like 30 year olds and I'm like start now. I know, you know, being young and fit is working in your favor but it's going to change, I promise. Um, Because I used to be one of those people in their 20s like, you know, Mm. I admit it, I had a sweet tooth, I ate cake, (laughs) you know, the sedentary whole nine yards and stay at the same size and then Mm -hmm. I had three kids and it's like I'm working and working hard and it's hard to keep the baby weight off so I've really tried now the younger my patients are I try to really like start reinforcing healthy lifestyle so it becomes second nature because if you started it when you're younger and get used to it in your schedule I feel like it just helps as things progress so I'm happy to learn (laughs)
1: Absolutely. And there's one more point I actually forgot to mention is just a lot of the the age related changes may be related to muscle decline over age as well, because obviously muscle may be a primary driver of our basal metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, men and women both have age related decline in muscle mass starting around age 40 ish. Um, But of course, if you started a higher muscle mass, as do majority or uh, on average men, you tend to have more of a leeway before you kind of catch up with most female patients.
0: Got it. So then my other question becomes, what are some other factors that contribute to people gaining weight or or, are there medications that cause people to do this? Is it, you know, some people like I'm stressed and I'm gaining weight. What have we learned about those things?
1: Uh, quite a bit. So as far as uh, diseases that cause uh, obesity, uh, you will see that most majority of patients with obesity, it's multifactorial, like we mentioned earlier, but there are specific diseases that can in- increase weight uh, kind of at a higher rate than most. So thyroid disease, usually hypothyroid, so a low thyroid function, because you generally have a lower metabolic function that can, of course, cause excess weight gain. Uh, those cases, again, are rare in overall, but it can. Of course, different medications, like you mentioned, there are a whole host of medications that people can either have a little bit or a lot of uh, excess weight. So especially with regards to women, uh, birth control. So you may notice that a lot of hormonal birth control can definitely uh, pack on the pounds. And so oh, yeah. yeah, whether that's IUDs or depot shots or even with an Nexplanon implant, you can see kind of varying rates of, of weight increase, mm-hmm. typically lower with the uh, hormonal IUDs and or an Explanon, But still, you can see ones with either one. One. There are also additional medications, so blood pressure medicines. There are several different co- kinds of blood pressure medicines that may lead to increased weight, such as beta blockers like propanolol, some of the older ones like atenolol, propanolol, uh, but also uh, medicines for depression or anxiety. So like Zoloft or Selexa, you can see uh, varying levels of weight gain as well.
0: Wow. Well, we definitely have a few calls here, so we're going to go ahead to our first caller. We've got Bill, um, who's with Yazoo County. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. How are you? I just wanted to make. I'm fine, and I hope you're well, also. I just wanted to make a simple comment. Uh, I was over overweight as a child and adolescent, and in, uh, into my life for a long time. And uh, I'm going to maybe oversimplify, but, you know, they would have all this psychology about why people would overeat. And my experience was food tasted good. And that's all I have to say. (laughs) Thank you. Well, thank Absolutely. you, Bill. I'm so happy you say that because there is, and Jared can speak to this, a lot behind. Um, we talk about food a lot. Food is, you talk about the psychological aspects, but a lot of us gather around food. Family gatherings are potlucks and family dinners. And if someone's ill or down or feeling sick, someone brings them food. <laughs> so you're right. And it tastes good.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, there's a lot of psychology, like you mentioned, around food, but simply put, food does taste good. And food is a comfort. And as stressful as the world has been, especially over the last few years, food is the one comfort that won't betray you. Okay, Burger King tastes the same every single time. (laughs) Um, And so if that's your comfort and you build habits around that single comfort, you can definitely become more dependent on that. And that essentially becomes a, a crutch that that's your that's your that's your comfort
0: so true. Well, we're going to move on to our next caller. We have Cheryl and Diamond Head. Good morning, Cheryl. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Um, I just was wondering how, um, if you could talk a little bit about how perimenopause factors into um, women's weight and muscle loss and pretty much a a decade of insanity that happens that people just don't talk about very much. And I'll hang up because my... um, my navigation is talking on the radio right now, I think. <laughs> no worries. All right, Cheryl, we'll, we'll answer that question for you. Gotcha. Yes. So you're exactly right.
1: You know, a lot of times, uh, in addition to just our hormonal changes that do just change your metabolic rate, a lot of times your appetite changes too. And I'm going to relate this to the previous question as well. As your appetite goes up, you may, people may not even realize how much they are eating across the day um, because as those cravings develop, uh, it becomes very difficult to control just how much you consume across the day. And things can really, really stack up. Now, that's not uh, the case for every single patient, for sure, because, again, there are plenty of uh, organic and chemical causes uh, that, again, change your metabolic rate. But a lot of times, a lot of patients that I talk to, their cravings just become out of control. And so snacking in, in front of the TV and in, in when they're doing housework, uh increased portion size a lot of times those do
0: factor in maybe more than some what people realize Yep. And definitely, like uh, Jarrett was saying earlier, we do know that those changes in hormonal levels can have not only, again, metabolic rate, appetites, cravings, whole nine yards. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. And today I have on Dr. Jarrett Morgan, who is an Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics as well, but also is an obesity specialist here at ummc um, and we have been spending this morning talking a little bit about obesity some of the challenges that we as women can face um, with weight loss and those types of things and so i'm going to move on to our caller and thank you so much Ann, for being patient with us with that break how are you this morning i'm great and i just want to tell you i love your show i live in louisiana But I'm driving through Mississippi, and that's when I pick y'all up. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Ann. Tell me a little bit about your question. Okay. I learned this term on the Internet, which I know is the wrong thing to do. Menopausal belly. I've got it. I'm 76 years old. I go to exercise. We do weightlifting and some aerobics. I do that three times a week. When it's not so hot, I get out and walk, you know, a couple of miles but I cannot get rid of my belly. Ann, I'm, I'm right there with you. And, and first of all, I want to say kudos to staying, the most important part is staying healthy. So I'm so happy that you are remaining very active um, and doing all the right things. So, Yes. I, when you find out the secret, you let me know. But we're going to see what Jared has to say.
1: <laughs> so, thank you. Yes. So, hey, Ann, thank you for your question. Uh, you know, the frustrating part for me is that we haven't yet found the silver bullet um, for targeting belly fat. And that is the single most frustrating question I have heard over the last three, four years. Um, now, in general, uh, we know that as far as building up your, your muscle mass, those, that principle kind of rings true. So you have to have kind of that dietary component that helps your body out. So from the standpoint of kind of generally lower fat or, or uh, increase healthier fat in your dietary components, uh, increase protein, in particular plant-based protein, of course, to help as you're doing your strength training uh, exercises, you do tend to build up your muscle mass. So as you build up that muscle mass and your lean muscle mass, that does tend to help burn extra calories. Now, as far as targeting belly fat, that is usually the last place to gather and the last place to go. Unfortunate. So, as you can take away your fat from other areas of your body, or you tend to burn uh, fat from across the rest of your body parts, that belly is the last place to go. And so, I encourage you just to keep going. Now, with regards to cardio exercise, we always tell people if they're having a if they're at a point. In which they are doing a steady course of exercise and they reach a point in which their body plateaus, meaning their weight kind of remains stable and they find it hard to lose any extra pounds, especially in those areas like you're mentioning you got to bump it up. Um, So you have to not only increase the intensity of what you're doing, but also switch up your routine. So your body is is smart um, and kind of a little bit stupid at the same time. All of our bodies are because your body adapts to what you're doing. And as it adapts to just your activity that you're doing, it doesn't burn as much. So you have to vary up your routine. But unfortunately, there is no spot way to affect that belly. Um, These general principles tend to help in most cases, but oftentimes there's no target way, no spot way, despite what you may hear from some fat diets online. There are plenty of fat diets that will say, this will help me lose weight. This is a cream. This is a tea. This is a pill that will help burn this specific area. But we, in science, most studies yet haven't really identified a particular area and so I hate to hate to burst your bubble just a bit but does that help at all Anne?
0: Well, yes, it does. I'm just gonna have to kick it up and notch. And and please don't. Uh, the biggest things I tell my patients: please don't give up. <laughs> Keep doing what oh, you're doing. Uh, I'm and not. Wonderful. And and I and I like I said before, I'm right there with you. I had three wonderful babies. And and honestly, what's funny is as we mention all this, my oldest, my eight-year-old, he said, "Mom, what's a six-pack?" And I was like, "Something I don't have." <laughs> I was like, Thanks to all of you guys, I got about a two-pack, and then the rest of it, <laughs> I fought for, the other four are missing because of my kids, but, you know, <laughs> well, That's you have, nice. you have a great morning, Anne. Thank you, you too. You're thank, welcome. Thank you, Anne. But yes, uh, so Jared and I were kind of chatting a little bit about the break because that, that that is literally what my eight-year-old was talking about, six packs and all the, that, those things the other day. And I was like, yep, if only I knew in my 20s you know, what I know now. But yeah, I've got about a two-pack. And, and <laughs> then you see all those creams on online and it's like, oh, you know, this will burn your belly fat and, you know, it'll smooth it out. It's as good as surgery, you know, those kind of <laughs> things. And you get kind of curious. You're like, well, maybe this cream could... Could help my belly. Then you read the reviews, and someone's like, "Oh, it destroyed my skin and all this kind (laughs) of." Anyway, so I tell, I try to encourage my patients, and try to keep myself encouraged to just, in the end, I, I care more about the health, the card, doing the cardio for the heart health, being healthy. And you know, absolutely, all you those know, things.
1: I think that from a standpoint of toning up in certain mm-hmm. areas, appearance wise, that can help. So, number one, from a belly standpoint, making sure your bowel movements are, are, are pretty regular. So, good fiber actually will just deflate things naturally just okay. a little bit. Um, good targeted core exercises just will help again tone things up in that area. So, it may not necessarily burn extra fat, but of course, from a toning part point of view, it will.
0: Yep. I was so thankful when high-waisted jeans came back because you just pull them on up over your belly button, kind of smooth everything out. And then some crazy person has decided to bring low-rise back. I don't know who that was and why, but I will continue to rock my high-waisted jeans and not worry too much about the belly. So we talked a little bit about, you know, defining obesity and, and some genetic factors and things like that. So what do we do? Your doctor tells you you're overweight, um, you need to do something about it. Where do, where do you start? What do you start telling your patients they should do? Where should I start?
1: Well, so from the standpoint of eating, eating is is pretty much the, the main driving factor. Just and I start by just asking three questions. How do we eat? When do we eat? What do we eat? And how and, and what segment of the day do we eat? So number one, how do we eat? And so is it in a control setting? Do we do the typical three day three meals a day at a, a sitting down undistracted? Um, what do we eat? And so that kind of goes into the components. So, uh, how much processed foods do we have? How much um, sugary bev- or how many sugary beverages do we take in across the day? Um, how many snacks across the day, in between our meal times, do we take in? Uh, what about what times do we eat? So. Even if you are sticking to kind of that meal times across the day, what about is it somewhat later in the day or early in the day? Do we eat too late in the night, like closer to bedtime? Mm -hmm. There are plenty of times that you may find that people skip breakfast, and then save all of their calorie intake for later in the day. And so we find that people, that is very weight-promoting t- type of eating pattern. You tend oh, wow. to have more of an insulin surges as you take in carbs kind of later on in the day. And, of course, that drives kind of uh, packing on more weight. And so we tell people, I, tell, I usually tell people, don't eat two hours before bedtime. Just, just cut that off. So if your bedtime is around 9 o'clock, uh, 6, ideally 7, minimum. Uh, and that usually tends to work for most people, uh, and of course, um, uh, keeping track of what you eat, uh, calorie-wise. Uh, those are main, There are many different ways that you can keep track of what you eat, either with a food journal or even tracking calories. Overall, you have to reduce calories. That that is the 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 biggest overarching point. We have to have some kind of calorie reduction, but of course, that does involve what we eat, which is yep. what I
0: mentioned a while ago. And I tell people a lot of times, quality. Versus quantity. Mm-hmm. And that is, uh, you know, one of my favorite, and we can talk about a little bit what maybe what your favorite is. One of my favorite diets that I recommend to my patients is Weight Watchers mm-hmm. because it, it, Really, to me, reinforces that. So, like for example, some patients will be like, "Oh, I just had a little Nutrigrain bar for breakfast," and you're thinking, "Oh, this tiny little bar is not doing, you know, not harmful. I cut my calories. I'm doing good. It's got whole grains in it, and all this kind of stuff." And then you don't realize. It's loaded with sugar mm-hmm. and it's not filling. There's no protein in it. There's nothing to um, really. So I, I liked when I kind of did the Weight Watcher. I, I use Weight Watchers to get rid of baby weight. And so I was like sitting here and I don't know that little Nutrigrain bar, the tiniest little thing, was like six points. And I'm like, goodness, that's a whole meal. And so a lot of times it's just rethinking what you eat because sometimes we think we're doing a good job and don't realize how many calories something that seems so tiny is.
1: Absolutely. So I, in terms of diet, uh, you know, I often have this discussion as far as which diets are the most effective. Mm-hmm. And really, it doesn't really matter for the majority of them. So like Atkins or Weight Watchers, there's not really a whole lot of difference per se. Uh, if Efficacy-wise, it's really just the one that people can stick to. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there are some exceptions. So for instance, there's one, a keto diet, that is, is very popular in some online forums. The thing about keto diet is that people have to stick with that. And mm-hmm. so there's not really any benefit to, say, eating a keto chips and then going back to normal diet that's not really how your body responds it has to switch to ketosis which usually involves sticking with that diet for about a day and a half or two days before your body kind of switches over
0: And then once you have too many carbs, then you're starting right back over. That's the hard part about that one. I know that much.
1: Absolutely. But as far as the Weight Watchers, Atkins, there's really um, no difference overall. I usually talk about the Mediterranean diet. That's pretty much my main diet that, that I talk about just because it incorporates so many other health principles, not just, of course, for weight, but also for other health conditions as well, such as diabetes or blood pressure
0: yep and and I usually tell my patients in clinic you know it's not a one size fits all and everybody's situation is very different, mm-hmm. so you know what may work for your friend may not work for you or may not be realistic in your lifestyle um so I usually tell patients like you said, all of them are fairly about the same efficacy so mm-hmm. in in other words um Success rate for other people, if you're looking at it, but you have to look at what you can stick with. So every now and then, I'll get patients that say, "Dr. Kinsey, can you give me a meal plan and these types?" And I'm like, every time I give someone a meal plan, they're like, "I don't eat that. I don't eat that. I don't eat that. I don't eat that." And so, so I usually try to like tell my patients to reflect on. Let's think about what may work for you, and then Mm -hmm. let's see what some options are. Because, like you said, keto is a hard diet to really kind of stick to, and can make it challenging. But it may be perfect for somebody else, like they might say this is wonderful for me um like my husband doesn't like sweets at all like mm-hmm. for them i mean maybe a cake but i'm like a sweet tooth i can eat cookies cake candy ice cream you name it i'm the first one at the birthday party raising my hand like are they gonna cut that cake yet <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so you have to do what's wor- what works for you because keto may not be bad if you don't have a sweet tooth anyway you know but if you have a sweet tooth i don't know keto really may not work for you so um it's definitely i think too looking at who you are and 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 what works for you ultimately as well.
1: Absolutely, because I think you know from a standpoint of preparing your meals, like meal preps or even mm-hmm. using meal delivery companies, some people do great at meal preps. I usually tell people if they are going to do a meal prep for the week, you got to do it twice a week. So mm-hmm. if you do it just once for the whole week, your taste is going to change across the week. And so maybe doing it on a Sunday for the next two days and then like around Wednesday and Thursday doing it for the rest of the week. That way you have a chance to adjust and see what, what will work for you and what you can stick with. Um, but using meal meal delivery like the ready-made meals which Mm -hmm. are usually lower calories usually higher nutritional content that is good and convenient for a lot of people a lot of working women especially who are on the go all the time it's easy to kind of keep one in your bag and just heat it up in the go and that helps to keep you accountable yeah because of course depending on how stressful your day is your appetite may go another way if you don't have that already prepared uh, to keep yourself accountable
0: and I honestly will say that I feel that way for my life in general. And not only just if I meal plan for that week and we plan out our week, it's just a smoother week, a less stressful week. And it's a lot easier to to maintain some of these diets when you take if you have the time um, to meal plan. I tell patients it just takes work. It's a lot of work on the front end, but it makes your week go by a lot faster when you just sit down on Sunday and say, we're going to do this for breakfast, lunch and dinner um, for this week. And in that way, you kind of have it planned and you wait up that morning, you're not like trying to do something real fast on the go. And I've learned the weeks that I don't meal prep or plan. That's when I'm like, oh, crap, I get home. All right, guys, let's order a pizza or, you know, swing by McDonald's or something like that, because I haven't thought about the meal. But when I'm like, OK, there's the chicken wings in the, in the refrigerator and we've got some broccoli, going to toss that in the oven. It's already in my mind and what we're going to do. Then I already have bought everything that weekend and you're ready to go versus, you know, reverting to. Let's get the pizza guys and a couple of wings. So, so that I'm, I'm a huge believer in meal planning
1: for sure. And it it helps, um, of course, like you said, this is a lot of work and it, it's hard to build those habits but it does and you can. Mm-hmm. It just takes time for it to become more second nature to you. It also definitely helps to incorporate some accountability, some help. Like you got to get a help and if you have a house full of people, some of whom may have differing eating patterns, get them on board. So for m- w- women listeners right now, for your hus- your husband spouses, your children, mm-hmm. get them on board because if they can help you out, it, it makes it a lot easier on you, especially if you are uh, preparing the meals for the house in some cases.
0: Oh, yeah, I completely agree. So we have really learned a lot in this past hour about, you know, how do we define obesity? What does that look like? A little bit on the physiological level, some (laughs) challenges that we as women have to losing weight. It's not in our minds. It is (laughs) some physiological differences um, that can make it challenging for us. But I hope that a lot of people have taken away that it's doable um, and that, you know, kind of looking at some changes that we can make and focus on healthy eating, um, incorporating some exercise and those types of things that can kind of help us in this journey to getting healthy. So the other question I get from a lot of my patients and probably challenges uh, that you that that are things that you get, how much exercise is enough? Like, what do what do I do? <laughs> like you go to the gym and there's rows and rows of equipment. Do I need the gym? Like, like, what what do I do to exercise? <laughs>
1: Honestly, cardio is the the first uh, step that most people should take. So a lot of people, you're right, do kind of jump into the gym per se, but there are plenty of things that you can do at home uh, that is pretty much a good cardio routine. So whatever activity, first of all, that you enjoy, that you can find some enjoyment in doing, but also the one that gets your heart rate up. Now, ideally, the goal, the goal is about 30 to 45 minutes for about four to five days a week. So pretty much 45 minutes, five days a week is the absolute goal. It can of takes a while to get there, right? Because some people, some people have a great starting point. Anne has a great starting point right now. She's pretty much already doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but some people are a lot, lot more sedentary. And, it, and it's important for people when you're starting a regimen, don't start. Um, obviously, that is the long-term goal but don't start that you have don't think that you have to start full blast mm-hmm. you can start with as little as just 2 or 3 days a week because, again, that's extra calories that you're burning just with a good cardio routine. So it's a little hot right now, so it's a little it's a little difficult for a lot of people to start walking outside. But simple YouTube videos. And so I'm all about some cheap stuff. And so there are plenty of channels online, that, uh, YouTube channels online that people can select a good aerobic activity with just to start, again, 10, 15 minutes. So once you have that good cardio routine, that's usually when I start to to tell people to incorporate that strength training as well. So some resistance type exercise. So that can be yoga, that can be involving weights, that can be involving resistance bands, um, but that usually comes a little second hand after the cardio routine is already established.
0: I like it. And then the other thing I tell my mom, so this is out there for the moms that struggle with mom guilt, because the last thing you want, you've spent a whole day at work and then we're telling you to go exercise and you've already been away from your children. For some people that, you know, might be out of the home. You've already been away from your children. You feel guilty going off to an exercise class. You feel like that's even more time away. And so I really encourage families to do it together. So moms make it fun. You guys can do a Zumba you know, tape together, do some line dancing, any of those things. And you still get the opportunity, A, to work out yourself, B, spend that time with your kids. So you get to get rid a little bit of rid of that mommy guilt and C, you start showing your kids how important exercising is. So they start seeing that this is something that we need to do in our lives. And on top of that, I add that with walking, make it, you know, when things are a little bit cooler, we're going to get out, we're going to walk the neighborhood or wherever it may be. And you do it together and and talk about their day and, you know, talk about plans and all that kind of stuff. So you don't have to sacrifice your family time to incorporate exercise. So I just wanted to throw that nugget out there to busy moms because Mommy Guilt gets me a lot um, between work and trying to get home. And I would love to go to an exercise class. And I'm like, man, I haven't seen me all day. And we just had dinner and all those kind of things. So we've started to do some, you know, we'll do fun kind of line dance, just turn on the TV, YouTube, like you said, and do some line dances, be silly. I show, I don't know. I. The other day I showed them like the Tootsie rolls and they just thought I looked ridiculous. But I was like, This is what we were doing when I was in middle school and they thought it was hilarious and fun, but we're all up moving, we're all getting active, nobody's sitting, you know, on the sofa. So you can make it fun. It doesn't have to be something drastic. Um, and you can definitely make it fun for the family.
1: Absolutely. But one other thing I don't want people to neglect is even non-exercise activity. And so, yes, we want you to have that regimen where you're getting your heart rate up and being more active. But you can burn a significant amount of calories just from simple activities across the day. So going on walks on simple walks on breaks, Mm -hmm. um, using standing desks, uh, using uh, or fidgeting devices, um, adjusting your posture in your chair, even when you're sitting down. There are simple ways that you can increase your activity even outside of that exercise time.
0: And I tell everyone, you got to start somewhere. Like, I know it seems overwhelming, but just like uh, Jarrett was saying, you can make it, sometimes what happens is we make these goals so grand and it might be something as simple as like, I'm going to do 20 minutes twice a week. I'll take it. That was 40 minutes in the week that you weren't doing before. And then you find that it's a little bit easier to start incorporating things. It might just be, I'm going to meal plan on Monday and Wednesday. That's two days that you've taken out some type of fast food or things like that. So little, small changes that sometimes people feel. It does not have to be this grand personal trainer, personal diet, you know, kind of thing that you got to do to make these differences in your health. And then the other thing that I always like to push as well, when I'm talking to my patients is, yes, we like to see the scale change. But as you're honestly, as you're a doctor, I just want to see the lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. I want us to start making those differences and the scale will come later. It really will. Um, but and for some takes a little bit longer than others so I, I never want patients out there that are on this journey to be too discouraged because the scale is not always showing us what we want it to show us but oftentimes in the way our clothes are fitting the way we feel yes you know don't forget that those are success stories too
1: for sure the goal is to be healthy and if you make those lifestyle changes, that's a good start.
0: And what's so crazy, Jared, we didn't even get to the medications. We're going to have to do <laughs> no, that on didn't. another segment because that's another big topic. But I've truly enjoyed hanging out with you today, Jared. And thank you so much to our callers and listeners. This is Southern Remedy Women's Health. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey. Join us next Friday at 11 for Southern